Cool. Hey, welcome. Uh, welcome, everyone. You're listening into News of the Money World. We cover some of the news all of the time. Still working on that strap line. But how are you, Rupert? I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Do, pretty we, good. do we cover the news or do we just cover what we like chatting about? It's that one. Yeah, the second <laughs> one. <laughs> we cover the ones where we can kind of weave an interesting story. It's whatever kind of sparks joy, really, as far as I'm concerned. That's why it's enjoyable to do, though. Yeah, no, totally. So this is the last one of the year, and yep. we've only recommenced the the show after a bit of a hiatus. So this is the last one of the year. Um, we'll kick it off again, either late January, early February. That's the that's the plan. But considering it's been like a really eventful year in so many areas, where maybe at the start of the year we tried to make some predictions, at least mentally, yep. if not verbalized. Now we're at a position where we can see and benchmark those predictions. You guys have put out at Kura a really cool. Um, 2023 conclusions and 2024 outlook report. So I thought maybe we could start there. I've just got a few questions I wouldn't mind throwing at you around that. Starting with inflation. Um, A lot of this stuff, uh, it's impossible to get it right. But would you say that we, we, as in like the general consensus, got it right in terms of the inflation outlook? Or did we get it wildly wrong? Let's start there. Oh, we got it wildly wrong. There's no question on it, right? So... I think fair to say consensus economic forecasts across the board got it really, really wrong this year. Um, coming into 2023, we the broad expectation was at that point in time, it was kind of like 300 points of um, interest rate rises. No way in the hell the world could actually survive in that new world. Yeah. So it was going to throw us into a short, sharp recession. Um, and that was going to bring inflation back to peak, back to where it needed to be. It was going to bring interest rates down. It was going to drive growth to zero. It was going to be a pretty ugly year. But um, fair to say we got every single one of those predictions wrong. Yeah. Well, speak for yourself. Of course, I got it totally right myself. I just Uh, didn't tell anybody. I just didn't tell anybody. I I think if we we look at your uh, your portfolio of Bitcoin and gold, you probably, you did do it though, right? That's the kind of, you won. Hey, there you go. There you go. Hey, not financial advice, of course, but I know all the answers. <laughs> um, and so like connected to that, though, is obviously interest rates, right? Because the, the interest rates are there. Um, they're the lever that the U.S. Fed or the Reserve Bank here in New Zealand will increase or decrease to control the rate of inflation to make yep. sure we stay within that Goldilocks zone, um, pun intended. And that zone is really, really hard to hit when you've got some of these big macro things going on like war changing geopolitics uh changing global order and um supply change moving around all that sort of stuff especially just like coping with the aftermath of what march 2020 produced and the response to that by central banks really really hard to actually bring in this soft landing so with inflation um sorry with interest rates were you kind of surprised to see them go as high as they did and stay there for as long as they did? Yeah, uh, very, right? I think, um, I mean, I, I bought into the the general economic theory, which was interest rates, we, we were now in a new paradigm of interest rates. We were never going to go back to where they were and what the last 15 years was the n- mm-hmm. new normal because, to be blunt, for the better part of the last 40 years, or probably 50 years actually, not since the 1970s, have we seen interest rates go up? Um, and so I, I fully right. bought into that paradigm. 
I've been extremely surprised at the resilience of the consumer and the, the global economy, mm. which has been which has allowed economies to hold up, and that means interest rates have had to stay high. Right? Um, I'm thanking God that I did uh, fix my mortgage for two years about twelve months ago. Um, so I should have protection through to the back end of next year, but I'm starting to feel pretty nervous about that right now um, because mm-hmm. maybe my initial assumption of the new world being the permanent world was was pretty wrong. Or maybe it's just too soon to say, right? Like when you zoom in close enough, if in doubt, zoom out, right? Like it's really hard to see when you zoom in too close to see well, what's actually really happening over the long term. And I think that's that's the reality, right? I think... You said your set of words around the disruption that March 2020 caused. And mm. I don't think that any of us can kind of understand or, or fathom how disruptive that was to the global economy, right? We had supply chains which became absolutely chaotic. We went on a consumption binge for the better part of 12, 18 months, fueled by stimulus yeah. savings, but also fueled by the fact that people were locked in their homes, right? They couldn't, normally, I think it's 30% of. 30 to 40% of, of people's expenditures spent on services and we couldn't yeah. buy any of that stuff, right? So um, yeah. we kind of had this just this massive kind of shift in, in kind of consumer spending, consumer savings habits, um, at the same time massive disruption to global supply chains through a lot of the political action that the, the kind of with what's happening between China and the US and Lo and behold, that's kind of surprising that we're not 100% and been unable to figure out the medium-term impacts of that on the economy. And so, and I, I, I don't think yeah. we're quite there yet. I don't think we quite know what is happening or where, and that's where it's going to be quite interesting. Yeah, and it's, it was probably, I guess, kind of hard to predict that bulge in savings, like the the money, yeah. the money creation that occurred. Obviously, it's really difficult to map that out and be quite clear on on what impact that had but it seems like one of the spillovers was that typical households had a little bit more disposable income which accrued some of that found its way through online broker platforms into shares into meme stocks into crypto but a lot of it actually just sat in savings accounts or you know reduced debt and now i guess that partially maybe explains why the consumer has been really resilient during this time because they've actually been soaking up the rising costs through their excess savings, whether it's consciously or subconsciously. That's finite though. That will come to an end. And I guess it's about predicting where that, that bell curve picture is, right? Like predicting where the majority of people run out of runway in terms of their buffer or their emergency fund, which starts to convert towards supplementing their income when that runs out because if that runs out then that's when the full impact is felt um 100 and that's so we, we the start of the year in the u.s in particular where we've got the best data we can see the u.s consumer was in by far and away the strongest position um mm. that they've been in for a very long time right this very strong balance sheets yeah. and, but i think we are starting to see that run out from from everything that i'm reading we're starting to see tick ups and delinquencies um, yep. on kind of, so that means that loans are starting to go bad a little bit. Yep. We're seeing higher spending on credit cards. We're seeing much higher spending on Afterpay, those kind of products as well. So it is actually going to be really interesting to see where it goes. Um, yep. But the, the big thing that will cause the most stress to consumers is when they start losing their jobs. 
um, and because that's inevitably what what starts to happen when when companies get start to get nervous about the future, they start laying people off um, yeah. because they sit in there and they're trying to right size their workforce for the new world, and you do it too late, you're going to carry a, a big higher cost base. And that's, I think, one of the other big things that's been massively surprising. We haven't seen that, right? So not only did consumers start the year with a uh, with very strong balance sheets and with a lot of cash in the bank, but actually they managed to keep their jobs. Um, and that's yeah. the other massive surprise versus what we expected, right? So even in the US yeah. today, we're, we're still debating how strong or soft the labour market is, right? So we've seen some weakening in the, in the labour market over the last couple of months. All of a sudden, last week, the conversation is, well, actually, is that because of the UAW strikes or is that because of kind of what's happening at the government level or is it actually true underlying weakness? We, we're kind of, and I find it fascinating. So, And until we until we see the labour market roll over um, and until we see that economic slowdown, it's going to be really, I think it's going to be impossible for us to get inflation under control. Yeah, well, it certainly feels like the faster you go, the bigger the mess. And yep. it feels like if this is a soft landing if um, if you've ever done any landings in a plane where the runway wasn't clear, um, I know I, I had this once in a small plane where there was actually a goat on the on the runway right at the last minute. Um, it was a very small uh, runway, but you had to go around. And I think yeah. it's kind of like that concept where we might be coming in for a nice soft landing, but there's a possibility things could interrupt that, and you might have to do another circuit and go around and try again. And like there's a limit as to how long you can do that before you yeah. run out of fuel. Right. And so at some stage we, we have to land, we have to kind of square away this and um, resolve these accounts. Right. So like on that with the markets, we've seen like the S and P 500 do really well this year as, as a benchmark, it's only really been the magnificent, magnificent seven. And if you go even further, you could probably yeah. see that actually, it's possibly because of the AI or the expectation that that might enhance earnings even more, perhaps. Yep. But that's kind of diverged away from, I know for, for myself, uh, this is something that I would have got wrong as well. Like I, I kind of would have thought that coming into this year, at the start of this year, hey, we're going to see, we're going to see anything with risk really get hammered, which yep. would be tech in all its forms. So the Magnificent Seven and Bitcoin, I kind of was thinking we would see that really hammered this year. And, and again, I was quite surprised by just how resilient the markets were in those spaces. What's your general thoughts around that? Like, did you guys or did you call that right or did you kind of expect that things would be that resilient in the markets? Oh, look, the beauty about being a passive investor is uh, we don't need to make a call. Um, yeah. And I'm very happy we didn't because it was a fairly consistent consensus at the start of this year that it was going to be pretty ugly. Um, yeah. I think most people uh, hedged their bets and I think it was really interesting, right? So the, the S&P 500 started the year at about 3,800, 3,900 maybe. Um, yeah. The forecasts were for it to go anywhere from 45, 4,600 all the way down to 3,300. It was the widest dispersion of forecasts that the S&P mm. has ever had among the main analysts, uh, which showed the level of uncertainty that was there. So short answer is um, no, we, we definitely weren't expecting this. Uh, S&P 500 up as at the end of November, up 20% year to date. That's amazing. Mm. NASDAQ up 37%. But I think one of the things that we've probably got to get our heads around is the definition and kind of what is a risky company and not a risky company. And so I look at that Magnificent Seven, right? I look at 
Apple, Microsoft, Facebook. Um, these, those three, and Amazon, sorry, th- those four in particular, those are four companies that are absolutely huge. They've got humongous moats around them. They're still managing to grow earnings and revenues at double-digit rates, and they're spitting out billions and billions of dollars of cash every single year. So mm. what, how is it that we can talk about these companies as being risky, right? You kind of go, they've got Warren Buffett's moat sitting around them. They've got oodles of free cash flow, very high return on equity. So they don't need much investment to keep on growing. And so I kind of go, I think we probably underestimated just how strong those companies were. And don't get me wrong, there are some others that got, so NVIDIA, look, no one was going to predict the AI boom and what, what's happened there. So that's NVIDIA is purely an AI kind of story. Is it yeah. next Cisco or something like that? We don't really know, but that's done well. Tesla, yeah. look. Tesla got so badly beaten up um, in 2022 that actually that's more of a recovery story, right? And so I think personally, I think we need to kind of think pretty hard around actually what is risks and are the likes of those big tech companies, are they actually the kind of what we used to think of as the utilities in the the early 2000s, the safe, steady, easy companies? Mm. Um, but all of those characteristics, the only difference is they're just growing double-digit rates and there's no regulation around them. So, uh, hmm. yeah, I, I do find them absolutely amazing companies when you think about it, right? I mean, even Microsoft, what they've managed to do in AI and what that's going to do to their earnings over the next five to ten years, it's its truly amazing. That, what you said, though, around how these tech companies could kind of be like the utility companies of the future, right? That, that's interesting because I guess like a utility company, it's not necessarily going to, at some stage, the growth is going to be yep. like flatter at some stage in the future, but they'll just spin out a lot of cash flow. A lot of dividends will go through to investors. But if we think about the new world being more digital than the present world, well, what kind of services do we depend on in that new world? Yeah, well, it's all going to be provided by these tech companies. So that's a fascinating kind of piece of the puzzle, right? If we're trying to imagine what this new wealth in the new world looks like, those are your utility companies. Well, yes, short answer. And, and then also you've got to think about what, where does the, what does AI, in my view at least, what does AI do? And what, where does AI take you? So AI requires huge amounts of data processing power and requires huge data sets. Yeah. Um, and so now what you're starting to see from all of these companies is we're not talking small numbers, right? They're they're kind of, I think Microsoft has said they're going to be investing $50 billion next year in the Azure platform. Um, You've got kind of Amazon's kind of going to be spending gazillions of dollars as well, Apple. It's it's actually, if anything, the, the difference between big tech and small tech, in my view, is going to get larger and larger. It's going to get harder to take on the big tech. Um, because the incumbents with their platforms, the amount of money that they are spending is just absolutely insane. Um, And you're even seeing it, right? Like, so three years ago, Zoom, or two years ago, Zoom was the big thing, right? Like, whereas now most workplaces are just kind of getting rid of Zoom and going back to Google Meet or Microsoft Teams, depending on where you're going. All of these small platforms are going to die because they don't have the size, the scale, the engineering heft to keep up. Um, and that's why, yeah, I personally, I think this is the new utility. Um, Microsoft, mm-hmm. 
it's really, really, really hard to see what comes and grabs it from here. Yeah, that's interesting. And Google okay. say the same, right? I mean, Google, yeah. they, look, at the end of the day, they, they will, whether they win an AI or not, I don't, I don't know, but they're definitely going to be one of the top two or three. I'd say the same with Facebook, just purely because for them, if they've got to spend $30 billion to win in that space, they will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's very different to a startup where who's got to spend $20 billion to win in that space. Um, okay. because yeah. Okay. Let's move on now then to some predictions just to finish off 2023 and kind of put a line in the sand. I'll try yep. my best to kind of, um, access some, some really contrarian predictions just to throw out there just for fun. Just for um, a change. Yeah. Just to throw everybody off my trail so that they really know that this isn't financial advice whenever I speak. Uh, but let's start with recession, the big R word. Like my view is that that probably unofficially kind of kicked in around um, June this yep. year. And I, I know like I, I can see it um, on in the ground. Like there's definitely negative growth happening at the household level. So your view uh, in terms of recession, how, how do you think we look in New Zealand? And then how do you think that compares to say the, the global outlook in terms of recession? Look, I think um, my view is globally we probably just struggle our way through another kind of 12, 24 months, which is it's not a good outcome for uh, inflation um, and interest rates because the, a recession is what's going to bring those things down. So, But I think Europe are kind of bumbling along and kind of they'll keep going. The US, it's it's pretty hard to see where it's going, where, where that, what's going to drive that into a, a recession anytime soon. The one thing I do think New Zealand, New Zealand's definitely at a, per capita, pretty deep per capita recession would be my argument. So is that minus mm. two, minus three? I don't, I don't know yet, but it's definitely not a pretty number. Um, mm. So people are definitely getting poorer. And the reason New Zealand's doing so differently to the rest of the world, it's it's really about the structure of our economy. We've got an economy which is driven by two things. One is um, commodity prices, um, and so kind of soft commodities, so the meats, the wools, the dairy, the logs, all that kind of stuff. All of that stuff's had a, had a pretty bad year and doesn't really show any signs of, of growing. We've got a strong exposure to China, um, and China's definitely in the doldrums and, and doesn't look as though that's coming out anytime soon. And then this, the other big part of our economy, which is not commodity-related, is property and construction. Um, so construction will continue, but the property market, and to a certain extent the construction as well, it's highly interest rate driven. And so a lot of the, we haven't been able to build productivity. We haven't been able to build technology or change our economy at any point in the last 20, 30 years. And I think that's really coming home to roost um, right now. And so I think uh, the next 12, 24 months could be pretty difficult for everyday consumers here in New Zealand. Okay. And it might need to get darker before it gets better. But um, like, I think kind of, it's, it's like ripping off the bandaid, right? It has to happen. Yep. And the the more we kick that can down the road, the worse it's going to get. So we kind of just have to go go through it. Unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be any other way. Yep. Um, okay. So let's talk then around interest rates because you would, again, go back to that that idea that the Reserve Bank of New Zealand or a central bank of any nation state will attempt to use their monetary levers to make it easier for new credit creation to occur. And they'll yep. do that. One of the ways to do that is to change the official cash rate or the, the Fed funds rate. And so I think the the consensus would be around about June uh, in 2024 that interest rates will be going down. That's what most people would believe. 
What what would be your view on that, especially in light of what we were just talking about with recession risks being slightly stronger here in New Zealand than the rest of the world? Uh, look, I, I think um, I, I kind of agree with the June number. Um, I think there's been a lot of tough talk in the last couple of weeks by the Reserve Bank, but fundamentally, um, yeah, it's hard to see kind of them staying too much higher too much longer than June and where markets are going on interest rates. Um, that's kind of what you're starting to see as well. I, I think it's really interesting when you look back at history. So on average, interest rates have stayed at their peaks for nine, for nine months. Um, so mm-hmm. kind of, so if the last raise here in New Zealand, when was the last one here in New Zealand? June or July? Can't yeah, it would have been June, I think. I think um, could be could be wrong. And fifteen months is the longest that it's ever happened. Um, and so that would mean that if we still kind of stay at these levels by back end of next um, year, then this is going to be the longest time we've ever had at a peak interest rate. The mm. other point that's really interesting to to think about on average, interest rates drop about two hundred and forty basis points in the first twelve months um, when they start falling. They, they kind of drop like a stone because it's generally responding to a recession or pretty sharp economic impacts. Yeah. So, yeah, my, my, my prediction would be interest rates. So at an OCR level, start to come down, kind of Q3, start of Q3 next year um, pretty aggressively. But I think we should start seeing mortgage rates come down sooner than that because as the economic outlook slows and the expectation of interest rate drops starts to increase, that's going to be mm. priced into the wholesale market. So I would mm. be kind of surprised if we don't see some some mortgage rates falling um, mm. in probably kind of February, March next year. How do you think immigration, which has been really strong, like massively strong this year, how do you think immigration will impact inflation and therefore interest rates? Well, I think it's going to do a, comma, a couple of things, right? It's um, On one hand, it's, it's going to drive housing housing prices up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to create quite significant demand for a number of things in our economy. And so potentially immigration does drive higher higher inflation and higher interest rates, and that's what was flagged last week by Adrian Orr. The flip side, though, is that it should also keep wages down. Um, exactly, we think yeah. about a lot of the, the, the construction areas, the farming, a lot of those areas which have been crying out for workers, the kind of that very low... Um, what's the word, low low paid workers, I think is where they've kind of been crying out for the last two years. Um, it's going to do that, right? So I think, yeah, it's, it, it is going to be tough. We're, we're going to see probably a bit of pricing growth um, on some of those core services and probably wage wages will be kept down with those numbers as well. Mm. I'll be surprised if we see that continue, though, to be perfectly honest, um, that immigration at those levels. We've already seen Chris Luxon this week come out saying it's unsustainable and it kind of can't live at those levels, which is interesting coming from a national government who historically have kind of been very Mm -hmm. pro-immigration. We've also got to remember uh, Winnie, uh, Winston Peters, right? New Zealand first. It's all about putting New Zealanders first. And so therefore I think um, he will also have something to say on it. So, yeah, I'll be very curious to see what happens um, on the immigration debate over the next um, right. over the next little wee while. So, speaking of Winston Peters, aka the Donald Trump of New Zealand, who do you think is going to uh, like? Who do you think is going to win the twenty twenty four election in the US? Oh, it's going to be Donald Trump. Oh, I right. think it's really hard to see it happen any other way, right? You you kind of seeing the Republican Party really in, as parts of it try to distance themselves from him he just gets kind of every time someone comes out against him they're gone three weeks later um and so 
We saw it with the, the House speakership positions where it was his person that ended up winning. So, yeah, so I think, um, and then look, um, for better or worse, Joe Biden, um, he's just not liked. He's just not at all liked by the American public. And that means, unfortunately, yeah. um, they're unlikely to vote. And mm. it's also pretty, we, we're starting to see it all over the world, right? Where even in Australia, where you got, had Albanese come in hugely popular, but slowing economic growth, high inflation, people are pretty pissed off, people are getting angry. Um, his honeymoon has mm. kind of been uncharacteristically short. Um, mm. And so I think in the US, as we go, if we go through a, a bit of an economic slowdown, which it's hard to see not happening, we also have inflation potentially continuing for a little bit. Uh, you're going to get some pretty pissed off voters by uh, back end of next year. So, yeah, yeah, it's very hard to see it happening any other way. Okay. Well, I've got I've got a few ideas as, <laughs> as far as what's going to happen, Rupert. I've just been thinking about that. So, I, I to be honest, I haven't really thought too much about the Donald Trump piece getting back in again. But wouldn't that be strange? Wow. Okay. So that'll be interesting. Yeah. But here's here's kind of what what I'm thinking, and this might have. I guess this might dovetail nicely into that theory that Donald Trump gets into power. So if we think about the the geopolitical layer first here, um, China, Taiwan, Venezuela, um, is it Guyana? I think it is. Uh, Russia, Ukraine, and then we have the Middle East conflict, which really is a lot around Iranian-backed groups, Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, the Houthis, anything with an H, it seems. So they're making hay while the sun shines, while there's Sleepy Joe at the wheel over there in the U.S. potentially, right? And so if they perceive that there's going to be a much stronger president taking the reins, then perhaps they're going to try to seek maximum damage next year. Um, op- opportunistic sort of strikes, um, thinking specifically with China, would be an interesting one. And that gives us an insight as to kind of where where I would be thinking, which, which would be war uh, expanding. And in a situation of expanding war, this is my theory anyway, which hopefully is wrong, and it's not necessarily what I believe. But in a situ- situation where that happens, I don't see any alternative other than interest rates going higher um, as a mechanism to reallocate resource towards the war machine. Now, maybe that doesn't play out in 2024, but yeah. it might. And if that was to occur, then that kind of really creates a lot of instability against the backdrop of a market, which is really trying to front run the U.S. Fed in particular around interest rate decreases. Um, that could wreak a lot of havoc, uh, especially in the bond market, if interest rates actually go higher and not lower, like what people are expecting. So like that's one thing that I'd put out there. Um, again, I wouldn't weight that as a, as a high probability event, but it could happen. And then the other thing is something that we haven't really talked about too much for a little while is just this, like the the ESG trend, or specifically decarbonization, yep. I think I think it might go through a rebrand at some stage because what it really is when you overlay geopolitics on this is it's a decoupling from the the petrodollar arrangement. This is like an early stage thought, so I'd be keen to hear your thoughts around this. But it might not necessarily be about the environment; it might be about geopolitical risk and trying to reduce that risk by becoming less dependent on Saudi specifically. So what like what are your thoughts on that one? I think there's two things there. I think um yeah, I mean the ESG from an investment perspective, I, I do 
I think that will go through a big change in 2024. Um, I think that where we've got to at the moment where we get increasingly large lists of companies that we're not meant to invest in, just it's not really feasible or sustainable, right? Um, mm. And it just doesn't work. Um, That's right. Is it is it a way to move away? Is it a how we move away from the Saudi petrodollars? I don't think so. Um, I think when you look at kind of say, for example, in the US, right, where I mean, one of the reasons why the transition in the US isn't happening faster and why they're kind of the ESG is slower in the US than anywhere else in the world is because the US is is, is the second largest oil producer in the world. They've got they're self sufficient on oil, right? So it's actually it's not about this to me it's about actually what's happening internally in the us uh which is driving a huge part of the conversation and the oil conversation versus anything else right um mm. and but i do think i think it kind of comes back to to my view on a lot of the esg stuff is that people people see the catastrophes they see the weather they see the climate they see it all happening but they don't want to make any changes themselves, right? So uh, some people will go and buy an electric car because it's cheaper. Um, but because it's cheaper or because they can save a whole lot of money, there's very few that are going and buying the electric car purely because it's um, because it's better for the environment. Um, and so I think investments are seen as a, as a costless decision. It's really easy to say, just invest my money somewhere else. And that kind of makes a big change. And that means I can then talk about what I'm doing for the climate. And actually, I don't really notice any different. Um, and so I, I kind of think that's, that's to me, where it's gone. Um, and actually, mm. to be fair, people have been extremely well rewarded for that decision over the last four or five years. Yep. And big yeah. tech and technology has gone nuts. Um, but that's uh, yeah. I just I, I'm, I I am increasingly having issues with um, where that world is going. Yeah, and the U.S. dollar thing, right, is the other side of that coin. Um, yep. That the 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 strength of the U.S. dollar, the strength the strength of the U.S. military, global security. It's all it's all connected there. Um, but I wonder if just sometimes the narrative needs to shift to get the momentum back. And um, it seems kind of important, I guess, to restore global order in some way or at least get it resolved. But like, I think over the next maybe, I don't know, two to five years in particular, it could be quite tumultuous. And so from an investor's perspective, it just points to more volatility, doesn't it? Massive. And there's no question, right? Um, yeah. I don't know. Whether it was you or someone else told me to, to read the book on declining empires. Um, yeah. And this is kind of what always happens. Yeah. America have had global hegemony for yeah. the last better part of the last 50, 60 years. And that's what we're starting to see the decline and unwind of that. Um, and if anything, that's what a Trump presidency will do is it will further exacerbate a whole lot of these issues because we're going to have a US that's much more insular, much more internally focused, which who knows? I mean, they do have a whole lot of internal issues that need to be resolved. Um, but yeah, that, that will create more volatility. I mean, the biggest yeah. one on volatility, let's be perfectly honest, is uh, what's going to happen with US government spending? Because the, the global reserve currency, um, which is run and the government's running at a kind of, what is it, a 10% deficit? Yeah. I mean, that's just not going to stick. You just can't have that last. No, it's finite. It's finite. And I think this is where it gets really interesting when you, you listen to some 
some key voices. Uh, Peter Schiff is, is someone that I listen to occasionally, and um, he's quite vocal around that. Um, Brent Johnson, he's got something called the dollar milkshake theory, talks a lot about this as well. Um, Jeff Snyder talks about the Euro, Euro dollar system. And they all seem to kind of be indicating that in this hockey stick growth of global debt, that can only go on so far before there is some sort of reset or catalyst or event, which just causes a day of reckoning in a sense. But trying to figure out what that actually means from an investor's perspective is really hard because at the beginning stages, it would in theory see a spike up in the US dollar as there is instability. And really, it means that the fiat currencies in other countries would fail before the U.S. So it's not necessarily a story of the decline of the U.S. It's a story of the decline of the world relative to the U.S. And so as it relates to most of our investors who are investing primarily in the U.S. market, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's bad times ahead. It just no. means uncertainty. And again, it just adds that volatility concern for the next probably two to four years, really. Uh, no, 100%. Um, it's the volatility I think is here when you look at the political environment, the interest rate environment, um, you look at yeah. what's happening in all of those countries that you mentioned, uh, volatility is, is the new world that we're going to be living in. I think yeah. history will show us that the last, I guess we've said this for a long time, mm-hmm. right? But history will show us that the last 15 years was the abnormal. Um, and actually now we're getting back to normal, right? I mean, I grew up in a world where a market downturn and recession was meant to happen every five or six years. We went yeah. like 15 years without a, or not 15, 12 years without a significant market downturn. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, I think, I, I do think we're into a very interesting world over the next kind of five years. And that yeah. the truth is, as an investor, that's fine, right? Volatility is can be your friend. You take advantage of the dips. You take advantage of when things get cheaper. Um, yeah. And then number one rule, right? We do not react to short-term market movements. Uh, we set mm. our strategies. We keep that strategy. We keep on dollar cost averaging in. Um, but we do not kind of sit there and get scared uh, when things go wrong because we the only thing we know with certainty is that they will get better. Um, yeah. And the only way that you won't benefit from them getting better is if you make some kind of short-term decisions on the way through. And to counter that then, we've been in a 40-odd year period of declining interest rates, and that's really the period of time where we've seen passive investing being like the way to go. But that's because over time, the tide lifts all boats. So if we're now kind of like at slack tide, where there's a lot of volatility and it's uncertain as to which way it's going to go, would that temporarily see a resurgence in an active investing methodology? There's a lot um, of conversation. There's a lot ahead, of chat sorry. on that at the moment um, yeah. about whether whether markets have been entirely driven by falling interest rates or otherwise. Um, uh, well, look, my view is I think there could be room for a bit more active management in terms of some of the geopolitical and therefore some of the regional shifts and the global shifts around the world. Um, but I think the honest truth is we still, investors have proven for a very long time that it is very difficult for them to predict individual companies and, and market movements. And so yeah, I, I do think there might be a bit of room for some kind of slightly more dynamic asset allocation. Um, yeah. but do I think that the days of passive are over? No way. 
no, no I, I'm not suggesting they are. But I think it's just this whole we're, we're okay sometimes understanding the first order consequences of some of these geopolitical risks. But when it comes to second and third order consequences, that's when it kind of falls over. And so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting time because we can't just say that, hey, if this happens, then that's going to happen. It's so much more multidimensional than that. And, and that's what we've learned over the last three years, right? The world was going to mm-hmm. end in March 2020 and it didn't. The world was going to end back in the last year and it didn't. Um, and so, yeah, this year was meant to be a tough year. And I mean, the U S is going to deliver kind of seven to 8% nominal GDP growth. That's amazing. Right. No one ever kind of, who thought that was ever going to happen. So I think we're very good at catastrophizing. We're very good at kind of going, things are going to get ugly. Um, and they always just muddle through market economies and people are extremely resilient and we figure it out. That's a really good place to leave it on for the uh, end of this episode and the end of the year. Yes. As, uh, stay stay positive, stay classy, stay happy, stay together with your partner. All good stuff, right? Oh, it's awesome. <laughs> wow. Well, cool. Have a great Christmas, Darcy. And everyone else that's listening, I hope you have a great Christmas too. And um, yeah. good luck surviving the Christmas carnage. And um, family, yeah. have right. a, make sure you set yourselves up for a great 2024. Fantastic. Have a good one.